Welcome to lecture number 12, The Women at the Cross, Susanna and Jana. My name is Dave Shanifelt, and I think you'll come away from this lecture with facts and details you never heard before. At least I did when I came across them, and I'm glad to share them with you. Several of my kids have gone to or are going to Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. It's a wonderfully faithful Catholic college, and it's been attracting lots of strong Catholic families around the country which is why we're glad to be there. My three boys who've gone there have a funny prankster streak in them. And they tell me what they like to do when they're walking across campus and they see some large Catholic family on tour there. You know, mom and dad walking ahead of a troop of kids ranging from some awkward older teenager who's thinking of going to school there down a whole range of siblings in tow and maybe a baby on the hip. So my goofball boys will like to holler out some random name across campus in their direction as if hailing a friend and see what happens, betting they'll guess someone's name correctly. Now they don't bet on any random name. They yell out one of those uniquely Catholic names like John Paul or Faustina or Fulton or Kateri or Colby. No parent gives their kids these names these days unless they have a particular devotion to the saints with these names or if they have a really, really weird family name they're trying to preserve. So my kids will call out, Hey, John Paul! Or Hey, Faustina! Waiting to see which of the seven, eight, nine, or ten kids in tow will turn around thinking their name is being called. And they almost always get it. Some little kid's head will flash toward them, and then they'll know they guessed right. And then they'll laugh to themselves for their cleverness and walk off somewhere else. Now I think of this when I think of what historians have been able to do when armed with only a very brief description of someone's name in a little detail. If, say, 500 years from now, some historian read a contemporary fleeting account in or about, say, the year 2022, about John Paul, a student at Benedictine College, or Faustina, a lacrosse player at Benedictine College, an astute historian will be able to pull together quite a bit of detail about those two using only those few words. The historian would tell us these things. Number one, the names were popular names among loyal Catholic families at the turn of the 21st century, owing to the popularity of recently canonized saints who were popular among loyal Catholic families at that time. And those saints would include Pope St. John Paul II and St. Faustina Kowalska, the messenger of divine mercy. Two, loyal Catholic families tended to have large Catholic families. Three, loyal Catholic families tended to live countercultural and tried as best they could to shun the decadent culture around them. Four, a great percentage of these families either homeschooled their children or sent them to small independent Catholic high schools where they tended to enjoy a classical curriculum. Five, Many of these Catholic families had a tendency to entrust their kids to a relatively small handful of Catholic colleges, like, say, Benedictine College or Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia, University of Dallas or Franciscan University of Steubenville, or, say, Thomas Aquinas College, where I went. There are other colleges of this kind, and please forgive me for not citing them. You can look them up on the Cardinal Newman Society's Index of Good Catholic Colleges. But my point is that this experiment in random name-calling will work at these colleges and others like them, but it won't work at any mainstream Catholic college and or secular university. Number six, a girl who played lacrosse probably played it as a club sport because few high schools, especially small Catholic high schools, fielded any girls' lacrosse team. 
and 7, you would know what courses all students were required to take and what courses were elective. And there's a lot of other stuff you could say too. That's why my boys have fun hollering out those names. John Paul, Faustina, Fulton, Kateri, Kobe. They're great names because they're names of great recently canonized saints. Or in the case of greats like Fulton Sheen, whose causes are up for canonization. And there's a relatively small pool of Catholics who so appreciate these saints that they name their children after them. And my boys know all of this, and that's why they like gambling that they'll be right and get ahead to turn. And when you put all these details and others together, you're going to have a pretty good vivid picture about who this John Paul or Festina really were if you're some historian 500 years from now looking back on our time. And you'll do it solely from their names and where they went to college. Now, none of this would work if you're given other names or details like Bob from Kansas City or even Karen from Kansas. You'd be left kind of like we are with Salome from Palestine or Susanna from Galilee. We just don't get very far with that. Maybe you could say, oh, and they were likely Kansas City Chiefs fans too, or Royals fans. And of course, you'd really be speculating even on that. But John Paul or Faustina from Benedictine, you're going to get quite a bit of very decent and reasonable inferences out of that. Now, you may be wrong about every bit of it. Not everyone from Kansas City is a Chiefs fan or a Royals fan. And not everyone at Benedictine College who's named John Paul may be named after Pope St. John Paul II. This isn't science. But history deals with intelligent conjecture. And the inferences we're drawing here would be pretty doggone good intelligent inferences because we know them to be true right now in our historical circumstance. If Vegas had a way of certifying it, we'd say your odds of winning a bet on our inferences would be real good. But there's no Vegas for this kind of thing. And a historian is simply doing his or her best to tell us what these people very plausibly were like. And that's good enough for us creatures looking back in time and wondering what someone was really like back then. We're going to do that here with one of the women whom the Gospels identify as being with Jesus at his end. And that's Jana. Most of this episode will be about her. But before we talk about her, I want to talk about Susanna. And we can do so briefly because we know as much about her as we do about Salome, which is to say, not very much. Except that she too was independently wealthy. And that she was a hardy hiker, probably a cook, a washer, a mender. But she was more than that too. She appears also to have been one of Jesus's missionaries. But even at the level of the mundane, assuming she was, say, a cook, a washer, and a mender, just think about that for a minute. Can you imagine Jesus approaching her or any one of these marvelous women who are following around with him and saying, sorry to bother you, Susanna, but my sandal here keeps coming loose. Do you think you can fix it? And, hey, Salome, we'll be hosting some people for dinner tonight. Do you think you could whip up that great roast lamb dish you made for us last week? I don't think any of us would find such work demeaning coming from him. But while that kind of exchange is certainly not implausible, nor is this kind of exchange he may have had with him too. Uh, hey, Salome, Susanna, I just met this woman at this well, and yeah, I know she's a Samaritan, but I just had a nice talk with her. She's kind of jumbled up right now. Do you think the two of you might go into town and meet her and take her to hot tea or something? I don't think she gets out much, and I think she'd appreciate the gesture. Yes, let's not forget that Susanna and Salome and the others were very likely designated and effective agents in his missionary activity, too. Those details would be really interesting to know. And they'd be included in that book John the Evangelist said could never be written because it would be too big for all the world to fill. But as long as we're trying to figure out as much as we can about these women, there's something else I was hoping we might also talk about, even if terribly mundane. How did they dress? I was curious about dress and clothing back then, and I was hoping to have some interesting things to say about the clothes they wore, fashion and the like. But actually, the more I looked into it, the less agreement among historians I could find. There are two basic reasons why this subject is surprisingly void of detail and certainty. First, Archaeological reasons. 
fabric just doesn't last. You're just not going to find much of it when you're doing a dig. Second, the Jews didn't really like to have art that depicted human beings. So, yes, we can get a pretty good idea of what ancient Romans and Greeks and Egyptians looked like and how they dressed, because they liked drawing pictures of themselves on vases and goblets and tiles and so forth. You can see hairstyles and jewelry, too. But not for ancient Jews. It was taboo because of the commandment to not make any images of God. If not for him, why for you, was how the taboo developed. So we're left with smatterings of textual references here and there about clothing details, and we can know certain things in general, like that they wore tunics in everyday life. A tunic was basically a poncho, made usually from sheepskin or goatskin. Basically, you take a square rectangular piece of the hide, and you cut a hole in the center for your head, and you cut some holes for your arms, or you don't, and you just let your arms hang under the poncho. Or maybe you make sleeves for it, too. And then they also wore an undergarment of similar design. And you'd have a belt, either on the inner garment or the outer garment, and that'd allow you to bind it up. Men could bind it up high, but women would not, as they wouldn't show their legs. And men would wear tassels, called tzitzit, on the corners of their mantles. This was a commandment from Deuteronomy, chapter 12. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your cloak, with which you cover yourself. And the book of Numbers says the same thing and adds this detail. The tassel must be made from a cord of blue. The purpose of this was for you to look upon and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to go after wantonly. This was what that woman with the hemorrhage touched when she reached out to Jesus when he was passing through a crowd one day. She touched the tassel, the very probably blue tassel, and it healed her. You might also have a cloak that would be worn on top of these in cold weather. This is what Jesus said you should give someone who is suing you for your tunic. Go ahead, give them your cloak as well, in Matthew chapter 5. That's a really irritating passage, isn't it? Your cloak, too? Really? Women and men wore basically the same thing, although some think women had a lot more options in color. You didn't have to stick with that drab sheep color and be forced to have only, say, cream, eggshell, ivory, or vanilla. You could go with any other color you had the means or opportunity to pursue. Even pink, they say. Remember Lydia, the woman Paul met? She was a dealer in purple, and that probably covered shaves of... Lavender, thistle, iris, pale, violet, indigo, and plum. At least. So don't limit yourself to imagining primary colors only, or drab variations of white and gray. Now there's a lot of debate about the extent to which women wore veils. They were required in the synagogue and the temple, and unmarried women wore them. But beyond that, we're not sure. Hairnets have actually survived archaeological digs so women must have worn them. I rather think that any surviving hairnets were those that got stuck in someone's shower drain, because I'm sure they could easily last there 2,000 years. And there was, of course, other finery. We get quite a list from the prophet Isaiah when he's recounting what the Lord said to him and what the Lord said he will take away from the daughters of Zion, which presumes they were items they commonly had. Because they were haughty and wanton, the Lord said, he will take these things from them. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the garments of gauze, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. That's from Isaiah chapter 3, quite a list. And it might otherwise be a credible inventory for any Nordstrom's or TJ Maxx. So, yes, to the extent they could afford it, women wore these things, these things too, with one caveat, nose rings and earrings. Remember, the Torah fids, forbids piercings. So these items would have been hung, not pierced, at least for observant Jewish women. And there's also, as Isaiah mentioned, perfumes. That would have included mixes of frankincense and aloes and nard and cinnamon and saffron, 
you know, stuff to smell nice. They didn't have Chanel Number no. 5, but they sure, sure would have had it if they could have had it. How about makeup? Historians aren't sure. Certainly, Jeremiah took aim at those who did. He said this, And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you deck yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. You lovers, your lovers despise you. They seek your life. So, we know from that, at least some women wore makeup. So back to Susanna and Salome and Jana. We know they were wealthy, and at some point in their lives, they may have dressed fashionably, according to the women of the day, or maybe not, but they had the means to dress that way. And given their new lives walking with Jesus, they most assuredly did not keep dressing that way, if they once had dressed that way. We were talking about Suzanne in particular, and I'm afraid that beyond these general background details, we don't know much about her, yet anyway. She appears in Luke's list, so he must have thought his readers knew who she was, and maybe they did. Unfortunately, we don't. But even if we don't know much about her, she still deserves every bit of our attention, imagination, admiration, and, well, we can say this as Catholics who believe in the communion of saints, her intercession. She had left everything to follow Jesus, and she supported him out of her independent wealth. She, of course, would be the first in a long line of women who thereafter would leave their wealth and follow Jesus. Think of St. Clair of Assisi, Elizabeth of Hungary, or even in our own modern times, St. Catherine Drexel. But as Suzanne and Jana and the rest were there at the beginning, they got to experience something none of these women after them got to behold, the extraordinary horror of the crucifixion. What a horror, what a grace. Let's now turn to the last named person at the cross, who is not a Mary, and her name is Jana. Luke is the one who mentions her, but he only mentions her by name at the tomb on Easter morning when he mentions that Mary Magdalene, Mary of James, and the other women were there. He says, and Jana was there too. We have to think she was also at the cross and at the burial because he doesn't mention anybody by name there and only says, by way of general grouping, that the women who were following from Galilee were there. And she, of course, was one of those women. Do we know that? Yes, because back in chapter 8, he mentions her by name as among the women who were following him in Galilee. And he uses this most captivating detail when he mentions her. Unlike anything he said about Susanna, whom he also mentions by name there, he calls her, quote, Jana, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Now this little description, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, is packed with an incredible amount of detail that historians have been able to unpack for us. And we're going to take some time to do it here because rather astonishingly, it just hasn't been done much over all these centuries. And because astute attention to history now gives us a pretty detailed description of who this extraordinary woman really was. Remember, at the outset, I told you about how my boys can pick out Catholic kids by hollering out recently canonized saints' names, and the fact they can do that shows that with just a little bit of information, we could surmise quite a bit about them because of the existing historical context. Well, we're going to do that now with Jana and her description here. Actually, we're not. We're going to let Professor Bauckham do it, because what he's done, I think, is masterful and worth fleshing out here. And I'm only recounting a small part of what he's done. So we start with this. Jana was the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. For steward, we're given the Greek word epitropos. Epitropos in general meant the administrator of a household or estate. In the case of a king, it meant the finance minister of the kingdom. The epitropos would administer all the revenues of the realm as well as the royal domains and household. The epitropos would have been a high-ranking official at Herod's court, vested with a high degree of trust and responsibility. The phrasing in the passage is ambiguous because we're not sure if he was a steward or the steward, but that's okay. We're on a roll. The Herod we're talking about, of course, is Herod Antipas. He was the youngest, cleverest of Herod the Great's three sons. We talked about those sons in the Trial of Jesus episodes. 
His brother Archelaus was the one who'd gotten the reign in Jerusalem, but was banished because he was an idiot and too harsh a ruler. Then there was Herod Philip. He was reigning on the way northeast side of Lake Galilee and beyond, and he was largely irrelevant. But this Herod Antipas was a schemer and the one who kept lobbying to take his brother's place in Jerusalem. He'd stay there during the festivals, and he was the guy who would eventually face off with Jesus after Pilate tried to pawn him off on him. And yes, this was the same guy who paid for a belly dance with the head of John the Baptist to please his evil sister-in-law mistress. But this Herod was also enterprising like his old man, and was raising large amounts of money through taxation to finance the building of three new cities, Sephorus, Livius, and Tiberius. Tiberius was where he typically reigned and held court. Chusa would have been in charge of managing these assets and estates, and he and Janna would have been members of Herod's court at Tiberius. There's a curious intersection here of a story in John's Gospel where there was a, quote, royal official who lived in Capernaum and whose son Jesus healed and whose whole household came to believe in Jesus. Was this Chusa? Was this Janna's son? Well, that would be conjecture. We just don't know. And it seems like we would know if Chusa was this person. But we do know this much. One reason why Herod wanted to see Jesus was because he wanted to see him perform miracles. So no doubt this story of the royal official's son had gotten back to him, and he wanted to see a miracle with his own eyes. And if this royal official was not Chusa, then we can certainly think the two were acquainted with each other. In any case, because Tiberius had become the site of Antipas's palace and the center of his administrative realm. His highest ranking officials would have lived there, and that most probably would have included Chusa and Janna. They most certainly lived in one of the very nice houses that were up on the hills above Lake Galilee. There's a second bit of information we can glean about Chusa and Janna, knowing they frequented the Tiberian palace. They really didn't take the Jewish faith seriously, at least while they lived there. You see, Herod built his palace on top of a Jewish cemetery. Observant Jews found this deeply offensive because of the prospect of contracting corpse impurity. So, whatever local Jews were living there were willing to overlook that inconvenient fact for the sake of having nice quarters and palling around the place were not serious Jews. Now we know this, and there's another thing we can know, that the local Jews despised the Tiberian palace and the people who were part of it. They also despised the city of Sephorus, which Herod Antipas had built and was serving as his administrative capital while he was building Tiberius. Tiberius had been around only 10 years at the time of Jesus' ministry in about 27 AD. And these two cities were a culturally alien intrusion into Galilee. And as one historian calls them, quote, aggressive acts of Romanization. One commentator observes that Antipas didn't just carelessly build the cities on top of the cemeteries. He did it on purpose to make sure that the people he had hired around him would be more loyal to him than they would be to local Jewish sensibilities. Curiously, not many locals decided to move there, and so he had to import people, including Gentiles, from other regions to come live there. And you can imagine how the locals felt about having to pay taxes to build and maintain these cities. Not a whole lot different than any of us would today. You work hard to thresh your wheat and press your olives to fund some lavish government project or building. And of course, you never forgot that this tax imposer was a cooperator in that hated pagan empire of Rome. And you were paying for some damn building named after a Roman emperor who'd encroached on the very land God gave you. No wonder there was always civil unrest or the prospect of civil unrest there. Chana and Chusa were no doubt aware of this hostility but they evidently didn't care about it, at least for a time. Did Jesus share the hostility of the locals? Well, very probably, in what we would say human terms. The Gospels mention that Jesus traveled near, but not into, several cities around Galilee, Gadara, Caesarea Philippi, Tyre, and Sidon. But he was never said to have been so much as near Tiberias or Sephorus. And we know he denounced the rich, Remember that great story of the unnamed rich man and Lazarus, the poor man, who used to sit at the rich man's gates and have dogs lick his wounds? And then he died and was taken to the bosom of Abraham while the rich man went to hell and then cried, as that wonderful old spiritual says, put your finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flames. Well, 
Remember how that rich man's described? He's wearing purple and fine linen clothes and banqueting daily. Well, guess what the Herodian elite of Tiberius and Sephora's were wearing and what they did daily? Yes, they wore purple and fine linen clothes and they banqueted daily. That would have included Chusa and Jana too. And there's a pretty direct reference that Jesus gives to Herod and his minions. Remember when Jesus was addressing the crowds in Galilee about John the Baptist? And he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking by the wind? That's in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 11. Well, why would he say a reed shaken by the wind? Well, could it be because a reed appears on Herod's coinage? And why was it shaking in the wind? Could it be because Herod's policies were always wavering back and forth, depending on what he thought would be favorable circumstances? And then Jesus goes on in that same passage. What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in the royal palace. Hmm. The only luxury and the only palace in that vicinity would have been Herod's palace in Tiberias. So, no, Jesus didn't think much of Herod in human terms, and he avoided Tiberius, and he later called him that fox. Yeah, a most cunning, sneaky, elusive predator. The perfect description of him. Herod's true animal spirit, as we might say. All of which is to say that Jonna must have been one special woman to step out from this luxury and purple robes and daily banquets to become a follower of Jesus. And think about it. She would trade that lifestyle to hang around a bunch of people who despised the people who lived that lifestyle? She must have had a most sobering introduction when she stepped out from that lifestyle and walked into Jesus' camp one day and said, I want to be with you instead. And no doubt it helped when she added, And look, I have some funds here that can help you out. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe those most excellent followers of Jesus in a moment of weakness said, we don't need your stinking money. And then maybe she said, just who do you think you are? And then they said, well, we know who you are. And just then the claws start to come out. And just then the great healer steps between them and calms them down. Actually, I like to think of it like this, that it was his mother who made the appearance. Ladies, ladies, let's sit down for a second and talk this out. And then can we add this? Jesus appears with, say, some wine. White wine, of course. Chilled. Fresh goat cheese and olives, anyone? All right. So I imagine a while. In any case, at the end of the day or week or whatever, Jonna joined the team, and she put her money where her mouth was in a very substantial way. You can play the scenario out in all kinds of ways that are familiar to us in all kinds of dramatic settings. You know, the rich socialite who wants to hang out with the working stiffs. The working stiffs resent the intruder. Class differences in the extreme. Always starts with a bit of tension. Kind of feel like it had to be that way for Jonna, too. Was Jonna even Jewish? Yes, we're pretty sure of that because her name is the feminine derivative and equivalent of the Jewish male name John. And the name Jonna is recorded as given to six or seven other Palestinian, Palestinian women that we know of. It was actually the fifth most popular name among Jewish Palestinian women. A top 10, in case you want to know, well, start with Salome. Yes, Salome was the most popular name of the time, closely followed by Mary, then Martha, followed by Shapira, Jana, she comes at number five, and then Sarah, Amma, Cyprus, yeah, Cyprus, that's a name you just don't come across much, and Bernice. Now for men, if you're interested, again, top on down, it was Simeon, Joseph, Judah, Eleazar, John, Joshua, Hananiah, Jonathan, and Mattathiah. The name John, as well as its derivative, Jana, means the Lord has shown favor. This is nice because the Lord certainly showed favor to both John and Jana. There isn't enough evidence at this point to say whether daughters generally took the feminine name of their fathers. So we really can't say whether Jonna was named Jonna after her father, who might have been named John. It may or may not have been the case. So 
that would be treading too far to claim we might know about her family. But the name as a feminine derivative rolls off our tongue as easily as it did for the Palestinian. And we do that readily for many other names as well. We have Paul and Paula, Eric, Erica, Dan Daniel, Daniela. So that's why we'll stick with the pronunciation of Jana from John. So how about Chusa? Was he Jewish? He most certainly was not, say historians. That name appears about five or six times in what's called the Nabataean culture. The Nabataean kingdom was Arabic, and it was located in the northwest portion of Arabia, and it stretched down along the Red Sea and up north to Damascus. Their people had been one of those nomadic Bedouin tribes that roamed around with the herds looking for pasture and water, but they settled down and had become a most profitable kingdom because of their location along the trade route. So Herod and Rome had a strong interest in maintaining great relations with the Nabataeans because of their common economic interests. This was great expansion territory, as the Romans and Herod would have thought. Herod's own grandmother was Nabataean and probably related to the Nabataean royal house because that's why such marriages were made. The Nabataean kingdom, in fact, bordered Herod's own kingdom on the east. And Herod Antipas had strong interests in making sure peace existed on his far eastern border. In fact, Herod's first wife was herself a Nabataean. We think we even know her name from coins and inscriptions. Phasaelus, and she was the eldest daughter of the Nabataean king, Aretas IV. But you may remember things didn't go so well for poor Phasaelus. Herod dumped her and started shacking up with Herodias, who was both his sister-in-law and niece, and who hated John the Baptist for pointing out this uncomfortable relationship. Naturally, Herod's treatment of Phasaelus didn't go well with Phasaelus's father, and by the year 36 AD, the two kingdoms went to war against each other. But before all this happened, everything between Herod and the Nabataeans was hunky-dory, and it was during this hunky-dory period that Herod would have appointed Chusa as his epitropos, his steward. Did Chusa come with Phasaelus as a courtier in her entourage? Sure seems possible, even likely. Did he convert to Judaism? Again, that sure seems more likely than not because Jonah married him, and even not very strict Jews like Jonah's family would have been very mindful of the strong taboo that existed among Jews as a class about not marrying non-Jews. Remember, marriages then were more or less arranged, and it seems highly unlikely that Jonah's family would have blithely married off their daughter to a Gentile, even if he were a rich Herodian official, without getting his commitment to convert to Judaism. Plus, if he didn't have any strong religious belief either way, what would it hurt to convert? It wouldn't be the first time a suitor had agreed to adopt his wife's religion for the sake of marrying her, and it wouldn't be the last. True, Jewish Herodian officials may not have cared whether they were marrying outside the fold or not, and there are documented examples of that. But we're not talking about whether a Gentile would have converted to Judaism for the sake of marrying a Jewish girl, and that certainly seems more likely than not. Historians are also quick to point out that Herod was smart enough to know that if he were going to have any support whatsoever from local Jewish folk, and he certainly needed not to not offend them as much as possible. Building a palace on top of a cemetery was one thing, and shacking up with your sister-in-law, who was also your niece, was probably a hormonal thing. But he celebrated Jewish, Jewish feasts pretty publicly, and he did, after all, refuse the Roman practice of putting his own image on his coinage, which offended Jewish sensibilities. He just used plants instead. And there was one other somewhat curious reason why it would not bend much skin off Chusa's nose to convert to Judaism. As a Nabataean, he was already circumcised. It was kind of a big deal for other adult Gentile converts. It was a big deal for adult Gentile Christian converts, and they asked to be excused from the requirement as recounted in the Acts of the Apostles. Thankfully for them, the First Council of Jerusalem resolved that issue in their favor. But it wouldn't have made any difference to Chusa he already had his skin in the game. And we can't ignore the benefits Chusa enjoyed by marrying a local girl. Among other reasons, he could prove his loyalty to his boss and help eliminate whatever suspicions Herod might have had 
about having a foreigner in charge of all his property. And then again, maybe she was really, really beautiful. Or maybe her family was really, really rich. That was possible too. Or maybe she was both. Such a deal. So, it seems like a woman like this, with all her connections and independent wealth, might be mentioned more than just twice in Scripture. She's mentioned as a follower of Jesus in Galilee, and she's mentioned at the tomb on Easter morning. And Professor Bauckham thinks she is, in fact, mentioned further on in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, chapter 16, Paul makes this arresting request to his re readers. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives and fellow prisoners, who were prominent among the apostles and were in Christ before me. Now, there's an awful lot packed in those few words. Paul's relatives, his fellow prisoners, prominent apostles, and in Christ before he was. Who are these people, this Andronicus and Junia? Well, Professor Bauckham makes a strong case that this Junia was one and the same Jana. Junia, he says, was the Roman name by which Jana called herself. So is this true? Was Junia Jana? Well, the name Junia itself caused issues for certain translators. Sometime in the medieval period, scribes started copying the name Junia as Junias. That's J-U-N-I-A-S. Apparently they did so because they were uncomfortable with Paul proclaiming that this person he was referring to was, quote, prominent among the apostles. So they assumed this person was a man, and they started copying the name as Junias, which is a male name, instead of Junia, which was an apparent female name. Interestingly, early church fathers weren't bothered by this notion, and they all recognized that Paul was referring to a woman, even though he called her and Andronicus as prominent among the apostles. The list of church fathers who assumed this includes Jerome, John Chrysostom, Theodoret, John of Damascus, Origen, and Ambrosiaster. Now here we have to admit is one of the cool things about modern historical critical scholarship. Scholars noticed that the name Junia was well attested in antiquity. There are more than 250 recorded instances of that name in Rome alone. And the name is derived from Junius. That's with an I-U-S, not an I-A-S. But here's the thing. There are no known Greek names of any Junias, that is with the I-A-S, anywhere. Get that? You can't try to make the female name Junia into a male-sounding name Junias because that name didn't exist. So, I think it's safe to say that the medieval scribes took undue liberties in changing the individual's name to Junias. But there's more to the name Junia, too. As we mentioned above, when we were talking about Uncle Clopas, it's well documented that Jews and other non-Romans would take Roman names that sounded like their Jewish or non-Roman names. A Jewish woman named Hannah would take the Latin name of Ananiah or Ananiah, or Hanina would take the name Anianus, Mary for Maria, Leah for Leah. And we see this for men too, even in scripture. Silas, who traveled with Paul, was also known as Silvanus. John Mark would just drop the John and go by Mark, which was rendered Marcus. Apparently, Jana was not easily pronounced in Greek or Latin, just as John was not easily pronounced either, and which was why John Mark just dropped the John and went by Marcus. But Junia comes pretty close on the Latin tongue. It makes her more user-friendly to the people she's evangelizing. Jana, Junia, same person? Why not? Like I said, it's still done all over the world to this day when a foreigner wants to integrate with the local culture. Paul left us some other clues in that passage we cited. Paul says that Junia was before him in Christ. That would have to mean she was one of the early members of the church in Jerusalem because Paul's conversion came after it had been established. Remember, he was on his way to Damascus so he could be more uh, ably, uh, able to persecute it. And Paul tells us that Silas, or Silvanus to the Romans, and John Mark, or Marcus to the Romans, were also members of that early church. 
So it sounds like this Andronicus and Junia, whoever they were, were at one point in Jerusalem, and then they migrated to Rome to help establish the church there. It's pretty remarkable, though, we have to admit, at nowhere else in Scripture, or in Paul's writings, or apparently in any other early church literature, do we have anyone called, quote, outstanding among the apostles. That's high praise. And that high praise comes with plenty of other women who are recognized for having played an active and important role in the life of the early church, and who yet did not receive the accolade outstanding among the apostles. That would include Phoebe, whom Paul refers to as a deaconess of the church at Sencre in Romans chapter 16, or Priscilla with her husband Aquila in 2 Timothy, or Eudia and Syntyche in Philippians, or Mary Trephena, or Perseus and Trephosa in Romans chapter 16. Paul cites them for their hard work. Pope John Paul II explains that this hard work referred to the various fields of the church's apostolic service, beginning with the domestic church, in which faith is passed from the mother to her children and to her grandchildren, as was the case in the house of Timothy. So this point about Junia is pretty critical. There are plenty of women mentioned who are praised for their apostolic work, but Paul singles her out to say she was outstanding among the apostles. But here's our dead end at least as an owl. We've been talking about whether Junia is Jana by another name, but what about Chusa? Could he have taken up the name Andronicus? We just don't know. Unfortunately, there's no direct link between the name Andronicus and Chusa. There are a couple of theories. Maybe Andronicus is the Roman name Chusa adopted. It certainly isn't based on any sameness of sound. Or maybe Chusa died and Junia got all his money or got all her, or got all her family money back and she remarried a very lucky guy with the name Andronicus. Either of those options is possible. But in the meantime, it remains at least quite arguable that the Junia Paul calls outstanding among the apostles is our very own Jana Waifachusa. By the way, there are some very good reasons why Luke takes the trouble to identify Jana as the wife of a high official in Herod's court. First, it explains why she was able to be a wealthy contributor to Jesus and his disciples. Second, her high social status gives some cachet to Jesus' movement. Yes, he came to give news to the poor and to make captives free, but he did so through the beneficence of people in high places. Third, it'd be useful to do a little name-dropping when you're trying to convert or influence people in other high places. Fourth, Luke is giving us a very reliable source for other events surrounding Herod, such as Herod's interrogation of Jesus on Good Friday. Who else would know these details except someone with inside information? This also puts to lie those naysayers who say that Jesus' appearance before Herod was just a fictional literary device for gospel writers to shower a program on Herod. B.S. This is authenticated history, folks. Luke even tells us at the outset of his gospel that he was writing this to his friend, Theophilus, after having investigated these things himself. And his investigation may have included a personal interview with Jana herself. One other thing about this Junia Andronicus, assuming they are Jana and Chusa, or Chusa's replacement husband following his death, what are chances Jana and Chusa, or Jana at least, would have bolted out of Palestine and gone to Rome at some point after Jesus' death and resurrection? Well, pretty good for a number of reasons. First, do you think she would ever go back to Herod's court after what happened after Jesus' death and his alleged resurrection, a resurrection she emphatically alleged had occurred? That's assuming she wanted to go back there as the wife of a Nabataean and a presumed friend of the Nabataean princess who was ditched by the evil Herodias. In any case, after the momentous events of Jesus' crucifixion, it seems highly unlikely she decided to go back to purple robes and daily banquets. Can you imagine what she thought when she heard how Herod and the other members of his court, whom she most assuredly knew, had mocked Jesus on Good Friday and sent him back to Pilate? How dare they, especially after all the miracles he worked in and around Herod's court? Naturally, she got all the intel of what happened. But how would you feel about those former friends and acquaintances within the high branches of your social network at that point? 
and I'm sure the feeling was mutual. These were not the kind of people who would likely find as credible anything coming out of her mouth. They knew her. She probably heard, even heard Jesus say the same thing about himself, that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Yeah, she might later have said, even in my own house too. She might have also remembered hearing Jesus when he gave his apostles this advice. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. So, yes, if these former friends of hers wouldn't listen to her, why wouldn't she shake off the dust from her sandals, as it were, and head someplace else, like Rome? She could get her way around Rome. She had means. She probably knew Greek, and that would get her by there. She probably knew at least a smattering of Latin, too. She would have entertained dignitaries from Rome when she was in Tiberias. Maybe she made some house calls in return. Hi, remember me? Yes, Jonna. Choose his husband. But you can call me Junia now. Say, do you have a minute? This was a woman who had hung around royalty. She was comfortable in her own skin, where she had every right to be. She had plenty of dignity to at least be hanging around the senatorial class if she wanted to. True, she was from the provinces, and she'd be regarded as something of a provincial, in the same way we use that word in English, with its negative connotations too. But maybe her stature and bearing made up for what she might otherwise be presumed to lack. Just because she took up life with Jesus and the poor doesn't mean she ever shed her class and social bearing. God doesn't change who you are. He takes who you are and uses you as he wants. Maybe it was because she kept talking all this Jesus talk to people in high places that landed her in prison. The damn woman just wouldn't shut up. Indeed, it's not hard to imagine Luke, who we know was in Rome at one point, perhaps visiting Paul in prison, perhaps as Paul's physician, Luke was a physician, you'll recall, where he found, sitting in prison with Paul, Paul's, quote, fellow prisoners, Andronicus and Junia. And that may have been where he got some first-hand accounts for the material he needed to write his gospel. Wouldn't it be awesome if archaeologists might come across his interview notes someday? Boy, I hope for that. So, do you now see why we can know something about Jana, wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, more so, more so than, say, Karen of Kansas? Something that at least allows for a plausible reconstruction from history, given our limitations of evidence, and that informs us with relevant information to know and understand, to some extent, the people around Jesus, and in this case, one who appears to have been at Calvary and was for sure at his tomb on Easter morning. Thank you very much, Professor Bauckham, for giving us facts that allow us to know Jonah with a fair measure of plausibility. Let's then sketch out a very plausible portrait of this woman, Jonah. Jonah was born into a prominent wealthy Jewish family of Galilee. Her parents arranged her marriage to promote her family's alliance with Herod Antipas, and her husband was Chusa, who had come to court in the entourage of the young Nabataean princess, who became Herod's wife. Chusa, in turn, converted to Judaism out of respect for the family and to show Herod that he was serious about integrating into the local culture. Herod promoted this enterprising courtier to be finance minister of his realm. Chusa and Jana lived in a magnificent house in Tiberias and spent much time at Herod's court entertaining local and foreign dignitaries. She had more independence than most Jewish women because she was part of the aristocracy and because she likely had her wealth of her own, given her by her father by deed of gift at the time of her marriage. She was used to spending money independently, quite independent of that of her husband. She didn't take her Jewish religion very seriously, but knew the importance of keeping up with appearances to the locals. She heard of John the Baptist and may have even been at Herod's birthday party, where he promised the young dancer before him up to half of his kingdom, and where he instead agreed to deliver the Baptist's head to her on a platter. Maybe she even threw up overseeing this. In any case, the event would have told Jana that associating with John the Baptist and his ilk could be a very dangerous association, at least through the eyes of Herodias, who no doubt had eyes on her. Jana would have also known the hatred and resentment the locals had toward Tiberius in political, economic, and religious terms. But at some point, John had discovered and met Jesus, and her life was changed. Maybe she was sick, and he healed her. 
Maybe she had demons, and he cast them out of her, like he did the seven in Mary Magdalene. Maybe she heard about how he had healed a royal official's son. Maybe that was her son. Maybe she snuck up and heard the Sermon on the Mount, or ate some of the loaves and fishes that were multiplied among the multitudes. We don't know, but we know her life was changed. She abandoned the quarters of Tiberius, the purple robes and fine dinner parties, and decided to go wherever he went and to hang out with the poor, and with some other women she likely had never known. Mary Magdalene, Susanna, Salome, and a bunch of other Marys. And she decided to pay for the expenses of the group with her own money. She probably even stooped to cook and clean and do menial tasks for them as well. She was all in, and she understood and embraced humility for the first time in her life, and had crossed the great gulf that divided the rich man from Lazarus. She may have even known or seen Lazarus, or the beggar that Jesus used for his parable, and that rich man too. She didn't care about honor, and her donations wouldn't have given her any honor either. She simply knew that Jesus and his disciples needed things from time to time, and that she was able to help supply those needs. She may have done this for a year or two. She may have been among those Jesus sent out two by two to evangelize the area. She probably stayed in Samaria, where she would have noticed the evident coolness toward her and the other Jews. And after they passed through, at some point, Jesus told them he was going to go to Jerusalem. And on the way up, he told her and the others that he would be delivered to the chief priests, be mocked, and crucified. But he also said he'd be raised on the third day. Maybe she visited with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and Bethany during Holy Week. Or maybe she had friends in Jerusalem who were staying in Herod's palace or nearby for the oncoming Passover. She may have also been at the Last Supper or in some other nearby room. Maybe she bought the groceries for it and helped cook for it and then cleaned up from it when Jesus announced that he was going up to Gethsemane to spend the night with his disciples there. Naturally, she didn't go everywhere he went, but she went wherever he wanted her to go. Maybe she didn't think much of it, more likely, she had a sense of foreboding, first because of what Jesus had told her a few days before, and second because she was a woman and had that sense of intuition like most women do. She could probably sense the concern in his Mother Mary's eyes. No doubt she was close to her, too. No one can be close to Jesus without being close to Mary, and Jonna had the advantage of being close to Mary in her physical proximity for more or less extended periods due to their common travel and camping out. The more time she spent with Jesus and Mary, the more she tried to imitate them. That was only natural, too. Then at some point, Jonna got the news. She still had contacts in high places, and she would have been able to find out what happened to Jesus after his arrest. It must have been, it must have been deeply emotional and unsettling. Jesus had been arrested. The disciples had all fled. Jesus was put on trial through the night at Caiaphas' house and was being taken to Pilate, or had been taken to Pilate, where the high priests were going to insist on his death. Did she get there in time? Did she get there afterwards, and in time to follow him through the streets, heavily bleeding from scourging, with a crown on top of his head, and be among a crowd of women wailing and weeping behind him, and hear him turn and say, Don't weep for me, but for yourselves? Yes, this would have sounded just like him had she heard him say it. But what could she do? What would she do? He told her he would have to go through this, and she was dimly aware that nothing she could do would stop it, nor should she stop it. She may have remembered that he told her, as he told others, that she would have to pick up her own cross and follow him if she wanted to be his disciple. She never quite thought it would come to this, and maybe all she could do, after seeing all this horror unfold before her, was to cling to her good friends around her, Magdalene, Salome, Susanna, and one or more of the other Marys. She couldn't cling to any of the disciples, because they'd all fled. Well, except one, and he was with Mary, the main Mary. They got to Calvary. They stood at a distance. Even that was brave to do. Maybe this was all they could take. Maybe they were forced to stand back. The chief priests and mockers all got to stand close up. Then at one point, Mary and John came to the forefront, and Jesus spoke to each of them. 
It must have cut Jonna to the bone to hear what he said, and to the other woman there. And she beheld all the events unfold there, including Jesus' seven last recorded words, his cry at the end, his last breath, the centurion's exclamation, the soldier's lance, and then the cold mechanics of death, waiting for Arimathea to get permission to take his body, the extrication of the nails, the reception of the lifeless, bloody, limp corpse. Was she among those who went to get spices and a burial shroud? Did she slip someone some coins and say, here, take these? Did she go herself? Was she the one who knew where to get a shroud because she was accustomed to buying purple and fine linens for the royal court? I imagine exactly that kind of women who would know whether you should be going to Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom's or Saks Fifth Avenue or TJ Maxx or some other like place to get just the right thing. The wife of Herod Stewart would know this. And she would know which one was open, which one was closest, and where the best sales were. Not that she really cared, but women like her just know that kind of thing. Did she know her way around Jerusalem better than the other Galileans, because she spent more time there than they did? Sure seems like it. She very likely knew her way around Herod's palace there, both of them, the place where Pilate stayed and the place where Herod Antipas stayed, and all the good haunts nearby, and the places to avoid too. Also, she was certainly good at hiking, so she may have been good at running. She could see the sun was setting and that they had to act in haste. If she didn't run, she certainly made sure others did, and go down this street, not that. She and the others got what they needed, at least for now, and they came back to Calvary. Soldiers were mostly drunk and cursing and dealing with the carnage of the two robbers crucified with Jesus. But she saw Arimathea had picked out a tomb to put Jesus in. They handed him the linen. A number of things could have happened with the spices. We know they went to buy spices on Friday evening, and they returned with spices on Sunday morning. Maybe they ran out of time to put them on Friday. Or maybe they, maybe they put some on and kept some to bring back on Sunday. After all, they came at the crack of dawn, so they didn't buy them then or the day before when selling was prohibited on the Sabbath. But that late Friday, when they were preparing Jesus' body for a hasty burial, did she touch his body? What did she think? That everything she had believed in was now shown to have been in vain? That she could never go back to the royal court at Tiberias? That she would be a laughingstock? That there was no point to life? Maybe word had just reached them that Judas had hung himself. Or she'd get that word soon enough. Might she take the same course? Who would care? What was life all about anyhow now? Fancy dinner parties at the royal court and cool purple gowns? What crap? What emptiness? Or maybe she knew this was not the end. It was the beginning of something, and a very strange and counterintuitive beginning it was. But now it was late. She watched the large stone roll across the tomb, and she knew she'd have to come back after the Sabbath was over to finish the job, smear his body with spices and so forth. What did she do that night? Could she sleep? What'd she do the next day? She must have met and talked with the other women in the group, because they all got up before dawn and went back to the tomb together. Magdalene apparently had gone earlier on her own. Did they even sleep that second night? How could you sleep after something like this had happened? How could you eat, either? She might talk. Talking helps. Sometimes. Sometimes there are no words. And the women likely would have either been talking or keeping silence with each other. Who knows where the disciples were? They were afraid the same thing would happen to them next. But the women don't seem to have feared that for themselves. Or if they did, they didn't care. They cared more about caring for the body of Jesus than anything else. So, early Sunday, she and the others got their spices and other stuff, and they went to the tomb. It might have been a mile walk to get there, assuming they stayed back at the place where they had the Last Supper. And when they got there, they saw two men in dazzling attire, and the tomb was empty. And they knew these men were angels, because they called them that later. And these angels reminded them of everything Jesus himself had reminded them. They ran to where the disciples were. They must have known where they were hiding out, at the same upper room where they had the Last Supper, it seems. And they were excited, but the disciples were not. They were dejected, and they called her words foolish. 
No one likes to be called a fool, especially an aristocratic woman of high dignity. You think I'm a fool? If Jana left them with any sharp words, they're not recorded, but it's certainly easy to imagine her giving them quite a tongue lashing. They would have deserved it. After all that Jesus told you, you don't remember it? You don't believe it? You think I'm making this all up? What nerve? What lack of faith? Go to hell, all of you. Door slams. Silence. Well, okay, that's dramatic license. But it's not implausible dramatic license. As an older holy priest friend used to tell me, David, sometimes you have to yell at people in order to be heard. So Jonah might have said these things, and we would now say in retrospect, Wow, Jonah, you go, girl. The men need an ass-whipping, and maybe she was just the one to deliver it. Of course, the niceties and brevity of Holy Scripture left all that out, assuming, of course, it ever happened, which I freely admit it may not have happened. I just like to imagine it that way. Maybe that's also why later that evening, when Clopas and her friend were walking to Emmaus, they used the word amazed when they said this. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, and they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So it appears that the men had softened after reflecting on the report of the women, whether it came with a tongue lashing or not. Maybe the women weren't fools. Men do that kind of thing. One minute, you're all fools. Then, after cooling off, maybe even a tongue lashing. Okay, I see what you're saying. I'm not convinced, but I see what you're saying. Men know when they're due for a smackdown. And none of this would have made any difference in view of the common notion and much-discussed view that the testimony of women in ancient Palestine was not given much credibility. That's an issue that actually accounts for the reliability of the gospel accounts, that the gospel writers never would have used the testimony of women to establish that Jesus had risen from the dead because no one would have believed it. If they actually thought that the testimony of women might have diminished the case for the risen Christ, then they shouldn't have ever mentioned any women at all. The fact is, the testimony of the women was inescapable, and they had to mention it. And if it meant that their testimony was less credible than if males had told it, so be it. That's an argument why they didn't just make all this up. But our concern here is not with trying to explain the credibility of the resurrection, but to identify and detail the lives of the women who gave testimony to it. And that's another reason why I'd like to think a veritable tongue lashing actually occurred. If the women knew their testimony was already diminished because they were women, I'd have to think they'd be all the more vocal about defending the truth of what they saw, and the more indignant they would be that anyone would question it, especially these fair-weather friends of Jesus. And remember, their testimony did at least have an effect on Peter. At least he decided to run to the tomb to see for himself. I think it's amusing, right, that John records he ran too, and that he outran Peter to get there. But notice also that John waited for Peter to get there, and he let him go in first. Yeah, Peter was slow, and Peter was the denier, and Peter was doubtful. But he was, nevertheless, the first of the apostles. So while John's story in Scripture ends there, it doesn't end for us who may know her history. She became a prominent and early notable member of the church in Jerusalem. She probably decided, because of her connection to Herod's royalty and her familiarity with foreign dignitaries, that she should go to Rome and use whatever aristocratic influence she had to work on people there to convert them to the new way. She could assume a Roman name that sounded similar to hers. She'd go as Junia, as well as Jana as plenty of other Palestinian Jews did when they needed to travel in Roman circles. Was Chusa with her? We just don't know. Maybe he took the name Andronicus, or maybe Chusa had died. But at some point, Juna, Jana, got put into prison with Paul for probably doing the same thing he was doing too, raising a ruckus by converting Jews and Romans. And they impressed the heck out of Paul, and impressed the heck out of others who reported to Paul. So much so, that he called the two of them something he never called anyone else, outstanding among the apostles. How did she die? We have no idea. Well, I'm not going to say no idea. Actually, we can imagine how she died. Involuntarily. As a martyr, that is. 
All of Jesus' close friends died died as martyrs, all except John, and even he was boiled in oil, unsuccessfully. I'm sure he may have wished he died. So it's not terribly hard to imagine that John was rewarded with the same kind of painful death our Lord hastened to give to all his other close friends. Yes, it sounds terrible. Who wants that? Few would, without grace anyhow. But never forget what a beautiful gift that would have been, and efficacious too. It was the early church father, Tertullian, who got to observe firsthand, in a kind of empirical way, and not just through blind faith, a very real truth, that the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. He witnessed this. So did the pagans. The more Christians they killed off, the more they continued to grow. Is it too much to speculate that John was martyred? No, not too much, I think. But with not enough certainty to place her on the role of martyrs, not yet anyhow, maybe there's some more history to be uncovered here. I'll be patient. So we draw to a close with new friends in our circle, Susanna and Jonna. Oh, how we may love them. To think of what they saw, what they did, what they went through. Yes, they were there when they crucified our Lord and when they laid him in the tomb. It's something that causes us to tremble, tremble. We'll leave them now, and we'll turn next and last to the last Mary at the cross, Holy Mary, Mother of God, and ponder a bit what happened to her. Please join us for lecture number 13, Mary, the Mother of Jesus. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Whoa!